Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Sharon Salzberg is my guest today. She's a towering figure in the meditation world and in my life and in my practice. If you are meditating today, whether you've heard of Sharon or not, she is most likely part of the reason. She was part of a small handful of people who helped bring meditation to the United States from Asia back in the 1970s. She's a co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, which is a, a meditation retreat center in Massachusetts. She's written a bunch of books, all of which are excellent, uh, many of which I recommend to people who are beginning meditators, including a book called Real Happiness and also Real Happiness at Work. She also wrote excellent books by the names of Faith and uh, which we will talk about. She has a different sort of twist on the word faith, and also a book called Loving Kindness, um, which uh, may sound like an impossibly sort of syrupy notion, um, but Sharon has, is one of the primary proponents of loving kindness meditation, which is a specific kind of meditation which is designed to sort of boost your compassion muscles. And again, to somebody like me, it sounds irretrievably ridiculous at first, but in fact, uh, there's some pretty solid science that is now starting to, to back up the utility of this kind of meditation. And I can tell you from firsthand, even if you are a type A striver, boosting your ability to not be a jerk actually has a lot of uh, very useful benefits. So uh, one last thing I, I just want to say about Sharon is she's also really funny and cool. So Sharon, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hopefully this is the first of many. Um, for people who don't know you, I want to talk about your backstory a little bit because it's really, really interesting. How did you get into meditation? Well, I grew up in New York City in Washington Heights, and I went to college at the age of 16, being a product of the New York City public school system. I skipped a few grades. And when I was a sophomore in college, I took an Asian philosophy course, which, which honestly, looking back, seemed like just happenstance. You know, I needed a philosophy course. It was a requirement. It was like on Tuesday or something. It suited my schedule. I thought, okay, I'll do that one. And it completely changed my life because it was, first of all, in that course, which was really centered around the Buddhist teaching, that I heard the Buddha saying right out loud, there's suffering in life, that if you're in pain, you're not aberrant, you're not weird, uh, you shouldn't feel left out, you shouldn't feel excluded, which was exactly how I did feel. Like many people, I'd come from a family background, which it was you know, very traumatic, very disrupted. And like for many people, it was a family system where this was never, ever spoken about. And so uh, I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me. And here was the Buddha saying, you, you belong anyway. You know, this is a part of life. And, and then I heard that there's something you can do about suffering, not the suffering of circumstance. And you can't ward off all painful events. But the way you hold it, do you hold it in isolation or with a sense of connection? Do you hate yourself and your life or do you have a sense of compassion for, for what you're going through and therefore for others? And so it was like the door opened and, and I heard there were such things as meditation practices. Um, so I looked around Buffalo, New York, and I didn't see it. <laughs> it wasn't uh, in the yellow pages? It didn't seem to be. It probably is now, of course. In fact, I know it is. I just got invited to... Uh, a mindfulness conference at the university that I, I ultimately graduated from. But um, that yearning is fascinating to me, you know, that sense of possibility. I thought, I don't know what I thought. I guess there's something here for me. There's something real. I can't be a bystander. I can't just think about it. So I, there was an independent study program at the university, and I created a project. I said I want to go to India and study meditation and get a year's worth of school credit for it. And they said, yes. Uh, so off I went. Let me back up for just a second. You have been very open in a very brave way about mm -hmm. the, the suffering mm -hmm. of your mm -hmm. childhood, uh, specifically in your phenomenal book, uh, The uh, Aforementioned Faith, mm -hmm. um, which we will talk about the, what you mean exactly by when you use the word faith. Um, can you elaborate on it a little bit now? Sure. I mean, my, my parents uh, got divorced when I was four. My father disappeared. I was living with my mother and her siblings. My mother died when I was nine. Um, very suddenly, I ended up living with my father's parents. Um, when I was 11, uh, my grandfather died, and my father returned. It was the first time I'd seen him since I was four. And, uh, he'd had pretty severe mental illness, and 
he came back. He was only home really for about six weeks when he took an overdose of sleeping pills. And uh, he didn't die, but he he spent the rest of his life, which was some decades, in some mental health facility or another. So um, that was when I wrote Faith. Uh, and I looked back at the time I had lived before I went to college at 16. I realized I lived in five different family configurations, each one of which had ended with someone's death or, or some kind of traumatic loss like that. So does, so. Does, does meditation, it doesn't Do make it. the pain <laughs> go away, right? No. I mean, somebody was interviewing me for something uh, recently, and and we were talking about one of my teachers, a, a woman named Deepama, who'd been an extraordinary model for me because she had suffered tremendously. In her she life. lost her children, right? She lost two children and her husband. Um, and that was when she began her meditation practice was after that. And she she kind of emerged from that with such an enormous compassion for everybody and uh, in the most personal, direct, real way. And it was very powerful. Um, so she was really my model of, of what might happen. She was the person who told me to teach. I, I would never have become a teacher without her. But but just back to my question, does it, do you think there is res- residue from that early yeah. trauma in your yeah. life now? But it's of not course. like meditation is some sort of panacea. I would hesitate to say that in your presence, especially. <laughs> yeah, 10% happier guy, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I don't think it's a panacea. But anyway, someone was interviewing me, and I talked about her, my teacher, and the person interviewing me said, well, and she said it in this very kind of timid way, do you think you you reparented yourself with her? Huh. And I said, I reparented myself with all of them, all of my teachers. You know, that, that wasn't like a tentative, squeamish thing for me to think about. I know that, that I reestablished a sense of relatedness because of their modeling of having been through suffering, of having compassion for everybody, of uh, being attentive to everybody, no matter who they were. Um, and I think the methodologies actually work. Uh, sometimes when I teach with Mark Epstein, Dr. Uh, Mark Epstein, the Dr. Mark New Epstein. York psychiatrist and author <laughs> and great friend of both of ours. Yeah, and he, um, his great idol is Winnicott. Mm-hmm. Uh, D.S. Winnicott, the... D.W., I think. D- uh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thank you for exposing me. Might be, it might be W.D. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Winnicott. Uh, it was a British psychoanalyst who, whose great phrase that Mark always quotes is, uh, just be a good enough mother. And Mark says, you know, it was all mothers at the time who were coming with their children. So let's say, be a good enough parent. Um, And someone in the room always says, well, what's a good enough parent? And Mark says, it's someone who can survive their child's rage. And someone says, what does it mean to survive your child's rage? And Mark says, not to be invasive and also not to be rejecting to have a stance where you can kind of hold the pain and be and be open. And uh, and I always say at that point, well, that's mindfulness. Yeah, I was just going to say, know? it sounds like mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, that is mindfulness. And so I learned those tools uh, around my own pain and ultimately the pain of others because of the, the methods of meditation. So you, you started studying um, Buddhist meditation yeah. But you specifically were drawn over time, if I recall, to this loving kindness or yeah. metta, which is spelled M-E-T-T-A, which is a, a word in the ancient Indian language of Pali, which means loving kindness. Mm-hmm. But why were you drawn to metta and what is the difference between the two practices, between basic bu- mindfulness practice or okay. insight practice in Buddhism and metta meditation? Well, we'd say mindfulness practice gives us the ability to differentiate between our actual experience and the story we're telling about it. It's not that we don't tell a story, but we can know the difference. You know, maybe you have heartache, for example. That's the true experience in the moment. But our minds then tend to add, what's it going to feel like tomorrow? What about next week? I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. Right? So that's just an add-on. That's pro- the, another ancient Indian word, prapancha, which has the word I learned from you, which is mental proliferation. Yeah, it's proliferation. Sort of the making of movies that go off that's that right. allow you to sort of colonize the entire future with your current That's threat. right. That's why they sometimes call it the imperialistic tendency of mind. It's like something happens and the whole world is taken over. 
So mindfulness lets you cut right there between the experience and the beginning of the proliferation. So then you have a choice. You can follow it. You can let it go, whatever. Whereas they say loving kindness practice will change the default story. So if it has largely been one made of fear, for example, and you, you cultivate loving kindness, it will often become a story of connection rather than fear. Um, so they work differently. They kind of do different things. And, and they're very supportive of one another. It's not like there's no loving kindness and mindfulness and there's no mindfulness and loving kindness. It's not that, but, but they are different methods. But in terms of the details, because I'm, I'm, I am mindful that some percentage of the people who listen to this podcast um, may not meditate at all. So what is the, how do you do mindfulness meditation and how do you do loving kindness meditation? Uh, usually you start mindfulness meditation with just trying to stabilize your attention a little bit. So that might be choosing something like the feeling of the breath uh, as the kind of home base object, resting your attention on that object, and the 70 billion times that your mind wanders, learning to gently let go and come back and gently let go and come back. And then when you have some amount of stabilized attention, not enormous, but some, uh, you begin to pay attention in that same sort of balanced way to other things, what's happening in your body, uh, different emotions, different thoughts. So it becomes a broader and broader array of objects that you're paying attention to in a certain way. So mindfulness isn't so much about the object that you're watching. It's the way that you're watching, you know, so that you're not so immediately reactive and you're not, you're like the good enough mother, you know, you're not invasive and you're also not rejecting. With some non-judgmental remove. Yeah. So you're not yeah. getting caught up in the traffic of your consciousness. That's right. Um, and, and by contrast, loving kindness is? Uh, in loving kindness practice, you would rest your attention rather than on something like the feeling of the breath. You would rest it on the silent repetition of certain phrases like, may I be happy, may you be happy. and Directed at specific people. Or beings, doesn't it? It could be a cat, for example, yes. or three cats. If you I do. have three yes. cats. Yeah, I have three cats. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that yeah, out. Yeah, that's okay. It's mildly embarrassing. Do you want one? No, thank you. Okay. I'm allergic. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, so you, you, uh, we, we, you, I should say, you actually teach an introduction to loving kindness on the 10% Happier app, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. in uh, as part of on the app. Um, we have all these uh, video discussions uh, that precede your audio guided meditations. And um, in one of the discussions, I pointed out that when you first, when I first learned about what loving kindness meditation is, it sounded to me like Valentine's Day with a machete to my throat because you basically you sit there and you visualize beings, which for some people is a problematic word, but uh, so people or animals, um, and you send them. You repeat these phrases uh, systematically. You may be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, may you live with ease, um, and then you move on to the next being, um, and until you actually do all beings. Um, so it sounds, uh, as I said before, sort of irretrievably sappy. But will you fill in the but? Oh no, I'd like to hear your experience. <laughs> well, 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 it is. You know, it it, it is. You know, especially at the beginning, and in, in, yeah. anytime you're learning a new skill, yeah. or yeah. Um, it's it's annoying um, and awkward. Um, and you're like, why? You know, I I was raised in the age of irony. Why am I doing this unironically, sending you know good vibes to all being? You know, what what ha what went wrong in my life that I find myself in this position? Um, however, what what reassured me was just hearing about the science. Yeah. Um, well, I, I hesitate to hype the science because I think it's still in its early stages. Yeah, yeah. But what it yeah. shows is that um, people who do this practice have lowered release of cortisol mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And, and other physiological mm -hmm. benefits. And also the early studies suggest that it, there are behavioral changes. You know, um, preschoolers taught loving kindness uh, meditation are more likely to give their stickers away to preschoolers they do not know, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, research done at Emory had people wear um, microphones for much of the day. And what it found was the, the, the people who had been taught loving kindness meditation were using the word I less, were socializing more, were laughing more. So um, that's what really changed things for me. And also that there is a real, there's even in a competitive, and I have an incredibly competitive job, it actually adds a lot of value not to be. A jerk all the time, mm -hmm. or not mm -hmm. to be burdened with uh, the wasted energy of hatred. 
So now I'm talking way too much. Just please take over and <laughs> amplify my points. No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, because I talk about it from the experiential point of view, which is that it does sound stupid. I know that. Uh, well, my first book was Loving Kindness, and one of my great fears was that people were going to call it sweet. and Because to me, sweet meant saccharine and therefore irrelevant to the grit of day-to-day life. And uh, sure enough, when the first blurbs came back, two of them called it sweet, but they didn't mean it in that way. <laughs> um, the actual experience compared to just thinking about it is very different, where it is, it's kind of a revolution in paying attention for all those people we don't actually pay attention to, for example, that we look right through, we ignore, we discount, uh, who don't mean anything to us. What happens when we look at them instead of through them? And so without like uh, it being studied or fake in any way, there is a sense of connection that, that comes about. And uh, the truth is that our lives are interrelated, that we don't live as these isolated little pockets, that our lives have something to do with one another. And the corollary to that is that everybody counts. Everybody matters. Not everybody's going to be my best friend, and I'm not going to take them home, and I'm not going to give them all my money, and I'm not going to invite them you know, to dinner, but everybody counts. And so even those people I don't like, there, there can be that sort of bone-deep recognition that our lives are connected and that moving forward with that consciousness rather than the kind of construct of self and other and us and them that we usually live under uh, is progress. You know, that's forward movement. And that's, I think that's how we're going to survive, actually. Uh, going forward. So it's not just sort of woo-woo and phony and, and make-believe. It's a very different way of looking at ourselves and a very different way of looking at the world. How can it be additive in a competitive environment? Um, I know I'm obsessed with this subject, um, but I can't help it. That is my no, life. No, that's okay. Um, so how... Uh, I mean, I have my answer to this, but I, you're, you know more and are more interesting than me. So what is your answer to that? Well, I was listening to your podcast with George Mumford last night. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Uh, George is an old friend of mine. And um, he's, of course, the meditation coach for, well, we say the New York Knicks right now, you know, <laughs> uh, the glory days with the L.A. Lakers and the Chicago Bulls. He's taught some uh, Michael Jordan, Kobe, Shaq. He's taught yeah. some major players how to meditate. And they talk about him, you know. Uh, they they each refer to like the special relationship they've had with him, and so uh, when his book came out, we were doing some things together in New York City, and uh, people kept asking him like, "How do you take someone whose whole bent is individual excellence, like being a superstar, and have them think more like they're part of a team?" Because that's Phil Jackson's philosophy, and George said, "Because that's how you win." That's how you actually win. It's having much more of a team consciousness. So I said to him, do you use the word mindfulness? Because he and I are both from the days when, you know, nobody knew what you're talking about. And it really did sound weird. And uh, when I first came back from India in 1974, and if I'd be at a party or some social situation, and people would say, what do you do? I'd say, I teach meditation. They would kind of go, oh, that's weird. <laughs> and then walk away. <laughs> yeah, and walk away. Or, did you meet the Beatles? And I'd say, no, sadly, they went when I was in high school. I didn't meet them. But, you know, so I said to George, do you use the word mindfulness when you're, you know, teaching basketball teams? And, and he said, now I can because of the research and the science. Then I said, do you use the word compassion? And I said, that's too much. But I knew he must talk about the quality because how else do you get that? sense of a team. So I said, what do you say? And he thought for a moment and he said, I say, don't be hating. Just don't be hating on yourself. Don't be hating on others. That's the message. Because it will drain you. It will damage you. It won't help you get ahead. Uh, If you really look at what's most effective, what's most efficient, I think internally it's a kind of self-compassion. It's not an endless, endless, endless rant against yourself when you've made a mistake. Which doesn't mean you've sacrificed standards of excellence or, or cutting edge. Um, and it's compassion toward others in that sense of uh, dissolving some of that real rigidity of self and other. I mean, I, you nailed it, which is completely unsurprising. But I'll just add on top of that that I mean, so I'm not a, a ninja at loving kindness meditation. I do it every day, um, but. 
uh, absolutely uh, not not for that long, and I still retain the capacity to be an incredible um, idiot uh, at times. But I will say that that to amplify your point, that that um, in a competitive profession where I am competing against journalists from other networks, and there's internal competition too, to be to drop even ten percent of the time the burden of unnecessary. H- uh, hatred or anger d- or resentment or jealousy directed at other people is hugely liberating and, by the way, makes you much more effective because th- th- that hatred is counterproductive. Um, and also, as you said, having some self-compassion so that when you make a mistake or when you lose or whatever, uh, you aren't engaged in endless rounds of self-laceration that, that, that diminish your resilience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, th- all of this is... If you can get past the initial syrupy nature of the thing, all of this is a huge value add, a huge value add. So anyway, thank you for teaching me that. My wife, as I've said to you before, would like to send you flowers on a weekly basis. <laughs> um, you mentioned before that, that it used to be very weird culturally to, 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 to say that you taught meditation. It is no longer uh, that weird. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact, what we're finding is that it's becoming kind of hip and trendy. Uh, what are your feelings about that? Because there are those who believe that a lot, a lot is being lost in in the popularization of meditation. It is referred to in some circles as mic mindfulness. So the floor is yours. Do you, do you agree with those concerns? Um, I think there are concerns. As you know, we were talking earlier. I don't like to think of myself as like the truth police, you know, I mean, definitely don't want to be in that position. I think about the times in my life, um, especially when I was starting out in meditation and I was so young, I was 18 and I was so, um, uh, I needed structure so badly and I needed a sense of having arrived somewhere so badly that I also really adopted the, the sense of, well, my way is the best way. You know, the way I've been taught is far superior and kind of ownership of the truth. And I really don't like the memories of myself from that period. And it was it was maybe a necessary developmental you like, stage. You were pretty strident. Yeah, I was yeah. pretty strident. Yeah. And, and I'm very, very, very glad that that passed, <laughs> you know, so I don't want to pick it up again or, you know, I don't, I don't think it's the right space for one to be in that, that I own the truth. Um, which I will now bestow in some measure upon you. Uh, I just don't think it's correct. So um, there's that. And there's also, uh, I think there are, uh, it's an interesting time. I once was in a group which divided up. I, I gave a talk somewhere and then we divided up into small groups. And so maybe there were 12 people in my little group. And I swear nine of them introduced themselves to me as mindfulness teachers. And I sometimes a mindfulness coach, which is a, a new iteration of that. Yeah. And I realized that days gone by, my next question would have been, who's your teacher? Because that would have told me something. Like if you said Thich Nhat Hanh, that would have implied social action. Uh, if you said Pao Xayda, that would have implied concentration practice or, you know, whatever. Um, and I realized that's actually an irrelevant question now that people don't think about having a teacher necessarily. They don't necessarily have a sense of lineage. It's easy enough to call yourself anything. Uh, there are many self-arisen um, teachers, and some of them are doing great service you know, uh, in their communities, but it's a whole other world than kind of the world I grew up in, you know, where my teacher told me to teach, and I didn't even want to teach. You know, I certainly didn't see it as a career path. And, that's the, you know, I went to see Deepama, that woman um, who had suffered so much in her life. In 1974, I was coming back for what I was convinced was a very short period of time to the States before I returned to India and spent the rest of my life there. And Joseph had already come back. Joseph, Joseph Goldstein, Goldstein, yes. Uh, whom I had met at my first retreat in India, and he was He'd been back for maybe six months or something like that. I should just jump in and say he's your one of the co-founders of the Insight Meditation Society, which is your your home base, and yeah. also a very prominent teacher, my teacher, and also works with yeah. us on the Ten Percent Happier app, and also a phenomenal dude. Yeah. So uh, I went to see Deepamati in Calcutta uh, to get her blessing for my very very short trip back to the states, and and she looked at me and she said, "When you go back, you'll be teaching with Joseph." And I said, "No, I won't." 
I said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. I said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. I mean, uh, the idea was unfathomable to me that I was capable of teaching or that I wasn't going to be a student, you know, in India forever. Um, and then she said two things to me that were very important. She said, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach, which was the first time, especially coming from her, you know, it was the first time I thought of everything I had been through as something that could be helpful to others, you know. Uh, and then she said, you can do anything you want to do. It's only your thinking you can't do it that's going to stop mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And I left. She lived sort of in this tenement-type place up in the fourth floor. And I walked down those stairs thinking, no, I won't. You know, it never really entered my mind as a possibility. And I came back, and I did, you know, things I needed to do, family and stuff. And then Joseph, by this time, was out in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, it was the first summer of Naropa Institute beginning. And... Uh, he was sort of Ramdas's teaching assistant. Uh, Ramdas had this enormous class of like a thousand people, and Joseph was teaching the. We should explain who Ramdas. Okay, is. please do. He, he wrote the seminal book "Be Here Now." He's more of a Hindu teacher than yeah, a yeah. Buddhist teacher, but very influential for your generation. Yeah. And uh, also was, if you want to go look at the YouTube clips, uh, uh, booted out of Harvard for uh, uh, doing experiments with magic mushrooms. LSD, actually. Oh, was LSD? I thought it was psilocybin. Anyway. Oh, no, no. <laughs> okay. I got it wrong. Uh, drugs. He and Timothy Leary. Drugs. Yeah, drugs. Yes. Um, so he, Ramnus had this enormous class. Joseph was teaching the meditation subsection. And uh, a number of us had just come back from India, and we had nowhere to go. So the joke was that Joseph was the only one with a job and an apartment. So we went to Boulder. And at one point, nine of us moved into his one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> you can only imagine how he felt. I know. He just was extremely meticulous. It drove him insane. Uh, but as he tells the story, he really suffered until he gave up the thought that it was his apartment. And then we were just all living together. It was fine. Um, and he and I began teaching together. And Jack was there, Jack Cornfield. One of your co-founders of the Insight Meditation Society, also a prolific author, great meditation teacher, and also founder of Spirit Rock, which is kind of the... West Coast edition of IMS. Yes, so that's where the three of us really met. And we began responding to invitations to teach and then other invitations to teach. And in between, we slept on people's living room couches. And we had nothing. We had nowhere. Uh, somebody finally, I think, because he was tired of us living with him, said, you know, I have an extra house that I usually rent out down in the Santa Cruz area. Why don't you stay there a while? Uh, so we went there. And somebody came through and said, you know, you should really start a retreat center. Uh, you don't have to like disperse at the end of 10 days wherever you are. And, and he said, I know the people who can do it. They're all in Massachusetts. And we said, that sounds good, you know. And so all this time I kept thinking, this is temporary, this is temporary, I'm going back, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a real teacher. And then one day it was like, oh, wow, she was right. Mm. You know, so it's very different than how it is now, you know, where it is a career path where... You, you kind of undertake out of whatever desire or intention is motivating you to become a, a meditation teacher. It's just, it's a whole different world. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing Sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on Wallet Happy. Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market.
Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Well, let me give you my view and just see what you think of it on this whole sort of popularization of meditation thing. Um, Yes, there are things in the meditation world, like David Gellis, our mutual friend from the New York Times, wrote a book uh, where he talked, wrote um, an article in the Times recently where he talked about mindful mayo (laughs) being sold. So there are things in the meditation world that kind of give me pause, let's say. And let's be honest, there are people who have looked at my book and and have found it to be uh, irksome from a traditionalist standpoint. And and fine, I I don't begrudge them their opinions. Um, But... Overall, I think more mindfulness is better than less mindfulness. And uh, yes, maybe it's being taught in places that uh, make Buddhist traditionalists uncomfortable, like corporations or the military. But um, I don't know. I can't see how that's a bad thing. I can't see how it's a bad thing. Um, But maybe I'm wrong. What's your view? I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, I certainly don't think where it's taught is a bad thing. I mean, I'm happy it's being taught in corporations. I'm happy it's being taught in the military. I know that is a controversial point of view. Um, I think the you know the teaching in the military because I know I watched the progress of that. You know, uh, people's fear is that it's being used to make like super soldier. You know, like the mindful sniper. But really, um, it started out with people teaching veterans whose lives were really shattered by PTSD. And everybody I know in the Dharma community was just so happy about that. You know, just uh, how can you want, I mean, who knows if it will really be um, a a tool that will help resilience. But if it is, how could you possibly want to deny somebody who's suffering like that? And then somebody said, what if it's a preventative? You know, what if people have this in basic training and they were less likely to fall apart and less likely to kind of do these extreme acts in the theater of war and less likely. And so then, you know, the training got sooner and sooner into someone's entry. Um, and that's when some people really got upset, you know, talking about the mindful sniper and all that. But I think it's fantastic. You know, like I think everybody should have these tools available, whether they end up using them or they end up being useful or not is another question. But um I'm all for the completely widespread availability and accessibility, whatever that means. But I do think that the, and this is controversial too, because people have very different opinions about this, but I do think the qualifications of the teacher make a difference. I agree with that. You know, and so I know many really- You're getting under the hood of somebody's mind, right? So you need, and and people like you have years of training in silent retreat. So the fact that people are whatever, just doing a- little class here and there who taught by who knows who knows who's teaching these classes i don't know that gives me a little bit of pause yeah that gives me a lot of pause and again it's not up to me you know i don't have like the the good housekeeping seal of approval you know but uh it gives me a lot of pause and but we don't, just that's an interesting question because 
on the one hand, yes, I, I certainly would. I want my teacher teachers uh, to have had an enormous amount of experience. But you know, if 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 mindfulness is going to be, if meditation is going to be scaled in our culture, given the, the what I think is the rising demand here. We need to have people who are sort of frontline teachers who haven't spent three years in Burma like you did or whatever. So um, how how do we do that so that the quality is high enough or a good enough to good enough. quote whatever his first initials are, Winnicott? <laughs> Winnicott. Yes. <laughs> From now on referred to as Winnicott because we can't remember his initials. <laughs> That's the problem. I mean, I've had these discussions so many times with so many people. Uh, I don't know, but that that's it right there. Um, technology may provide some of that answer, frankly. Uh, you know, and I'm not just saying that because you have an app that I'm on. Um, because the the means of distribution is then widespread and the accessibility is widespread, but the quality is the quality. Um, and, you know, I've really honored the fact, like on the app, you know, you're very careful about who's answering those questions. You know, the you coaches know, can, we have. Yeah, the yeah, coaches, we, we, yeah. We have, yeah, on the app we have a coach function. It's somebody you can ask questions of at any time. And we're very careful about who's answering those questions. And we have we have layers of security to make sure that those that you're not getting bad answers. Because it's pretty easy to give bad answers. Like if you were to ask me a question about your practice, I'd probably give you a bad answer. Because I'm not a teacher. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you were, you were saying, I, I jumped yeah, in. Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I think that... People come really good-hearted, well-intentioned, smart people come down to different sides of that. Uh, they say, you know, you've got to train the people from within the community, like within the military would be the example, uh, even if it's a very brief training. Um, and then I always say, well, then you've got to make sure there's such a thing as continuing education. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would really dislike the feeling in myself that I was done learning. You know, I have teachers, and I keep practicing, and if that ever stopped, I hope somebody would point that out to me, you know? Like, remember when you thought you were still a student? That was better. <laughs> uh, you know? You know, so I really worry about people who take a, you know, three-day course, for example, as a training, and then they think they're done. Um, you know, so even within those more widespread training programs, there could be safety nets built in in terms of continuing education and community. I mean, Joseph and Jack and I, we knew nothing, you know? Like, we, I'm institutionally, we knew nothing. I don't even know what a mortgage was exactly, you know, when we bought the place. But, but even in terms of teaching, you know, we were always talking to one another. What about that? What do you think about that? And, uh, there are a lot of people who are much more isolated than that, just kind of going off and doing their thing. So this is a your your discussion about your own continuing practices is a nice pivot to the other thing I wanted, which actually both of us wanted to talk about uh, coming to this podcast. Um, if you think about the the broad uh, pool of meditators out there. Uh, the um, metaphor of a pool is actually kind of useful because most people are kind of on the shallow end of the pool, the 10% happier, like let's just, um, you know, dial down our monkey mind and maybe dial up our, mm-hmm. our compassion a little bit. But there is a whole deep end of the pool, which you explored uh, at great length in your early days and continue to in your meditation practice, I assume. And uh, one of our previous guests, Jay Michelson, um, uh, who is a journalist and lawyer and theologian, and c- came on and um, and talked, did something that's actually uh, um, taboo in the in the Buddhist world, which is to talk about his experiences at the deep end of the pool, uh, and to use uh, to talk about this loaded e word enlightenment, um, because that's what the Buddha, you know, like granted, most people who are doing meditation these days in America are, are doing a secularized version of Buddhism, mindful, you know, straight mm-hmm. up mindfulness, but the. The dude who's the sort of progenitor of all of this is a guy named the Buddha. And what he was talking about wasn't being 10% happier. It was being 100% happy, enlightenment, um, mm-hmm. and the uprooting of negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's actually in, in the world in which you were trained, it is not, it's considered sort of uh, unwise. And you can actually get in real trouble for talking about your attainments. Um, uh so what is your view on, on the fact that there are now people out there talking about their experiences uh, on the cushion and how they've attained certain levels of enlightenment? Well, <laughs> I 
<laughs> I'm back to I don't like that part of me that feels I know the truth in the best way. So uh, you're allowed to have an opinion. I do have an opinion. That's fine. Um, I I did kind of grow up in a tradition for a number of reasons that where you would never talk about your own attainment. You know, other people may talk about it. I've had many teachers who'd say, oh, not not the teachers, but their, their other students would say, oh, they're, uh, you know, whatever. Um, let me let me fill in the blank there on that. There, uh, so within your, there are many schools of Buddhism, but you come from the Theravada school, which is the oldest of the old schools. And um, in this model, there is a four-step progress toward being fully enlightened. So the first step is to be a stream enterer. The second step is uh, this starts to sound very Dungeons and Dragons, but but this is the terminology. The second step is uh, a a once-returner. The third step is a non-returner. And the fourth step is the arhant, where done is what needed to be done. You have achieved full enlightenment. Mm -hmm. You have uprooted greed, hatred, and delusion. And and with each of these steps, one has an experience of nirvana, which is Mm -hmm. the... uh, Everything in our lives is a vast soup of causes and conditions, but nirvana is the absence of conditions. Mm -hmm. It is the unconditioned. Um, So pretty heavy stuff, pretty heady stuff as well. And again, you're not supposed to talk about whether you're a once-returner or a non-returner, where you are on on what's known as the progress of insight. And yet we now have people out there who are talking about it openly. So carry on. Well, the... um there are a number of reasons why talking about it was discouraged, you know, some of which are very quaint in our eyes. Like when the Buddha was teaching a lot of moral precepts, uh, a lot of that was to the monastic community. The monks and the nuns were going out every day for food. Uh, they were dependent on alms rounds, right? And so uh, he instructed them, don't, for example, only go to the street where the rich people live so you get better food. You have to give everybody a chance to feed you. Don't just go to the place where you know there's a good cook. You know, uh, you have to give everybody the chance to feed you. Don't boast about your attainments because then, you know, people might want to feed you more than your brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. behind Mm -hmm. you online. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot about that relationship, you know, with others and the presentation of the teachings to the world. That's where it started. You know, don't boast about your attainment. Don't show off your psychic powers. Don't, you know, do this. Don't do that. So, um there was just a natural sense of I don't want to be outstanding away from my brothers and sisters on this path. Uh, some of it comes from the fact that these, you know, the words are all the unwords, the unborn, the undying, uh, the unconditioned, the, the unconditioned. The you know, yes, yeah. Yes. And so uh, there are no words. You know, it's it's ineffable. It's like a, a mystical experience you can probably read about in every tradition. Uh, Sometimes poetry comes close. In Buddhism, it's the unwords, you know. And so different schools just throughout history will interpret that differently. Uh, Thai forest tradition has a very different descriptor of stream entry, for example, than Burmese tradition. And so um, that's the kind of thing that drives practitioners crazy. You know, it's like, well, in Thailand, I'm enlightened. And in Burma, I'm like nowhere. And... The teachers I had uh, would never tell you. They'd never affirm your experience. They wouldn't say, oh, yeah, you're a once-returner? No, never. Why not? I think partly um, it reifies a sense of identity, like now I'm a this, right, Mm. which is going backwards. And partly because um, I think other people would kind of give out certificates and they they saw that as very bad form. You know, it's like I did it, you know, or you did it and – if you think the basic motivation is supposed to be compassion, compassion for yourself and your own suffering and compassion for others, it it gets to be a little bit like, um, what's the point, you know? So you're, I heard that the early days at IMS, your meditation center, that-, that We gave were, out certificates? Well, no, but that there were times when there was a lot of sort of comparing of, oh, well, he's a once-returner and he's a non-returner. Or where they, I don't know if that's true, but that's part of the lore. And part of the reason that people cite that, that you guys, you, Joseph, and uh, at least you and Joseph, aren't big fans of people walking around talking about their attainments. Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, it was 40 years ago. Maybe my memory is like we started at the place. Well, no, I mean, as people, as peers, you know, uh, we've had some very interesting discussions as you and I might have, you know, if we chose to do that 
uh, in your living room sometime, you know, after I take a Benadryl because of the cats. <laughs> um, you know, like, what is your deepest experience? And um, in Tibetan Buddhism, the, the word that we call meditation, um, they call getting used to it. And so from their point of view, so there are lots of points of view. From their point of view, we have all had profound experiences of connection and selflessness and boundless love and infinite wisdom, but we don't live there. We don't get used to it, right, until we practice. That's why we practice. So it's not to get something you've never had. It's to make a home in the place that you've already known. You know, So there are lots of ways of framing that conversation. I don't see the exact benefit of saying to somebody, there are shifting definitions of this state. According to one, I think you may have gotten there, but I'm not totally sure. Keep trying, which would, you know, for me as a student, that would drive me insane. But isn't it, so you're saying that it doesn't, you, you're not a big fan of A, public proclamations of attainments, and B, even private discussion from teacher to student because it creates, it sort of sets us up sets us up for competition and striving and comparison. Yeah, I mean, I think there are ways of saying it because I think there are attainments for sure. But what's the result of that first stage of enlightenment, for example? Um, it's, it's said to be a stage from which there's no going back, right? You may get confused in the heat of the moment or with a lot of pressure on about whether... There is a solid, separate self, immune from influence and conditionality. But if someone asked you, you would absolutely know. Or does everything change all the time? Like when I'm full of craving, I forget. You know, I think, oh, if I had a bigger apartment, I would be perfectly happy forever. You know, but if you actually asked me, I would absolutely know. That's not the answer. So there are lots of moments in life where we, we kind of break through to the other side of something from which there's no going back. Even though we don't live it all the time, we don't live from that place, we so deeply know something that there's just no going back. And so that's what that first stage is around who we are fundamentally. But, but so if there are attainments and there is a map, if there is, if you can make progress toward enlightenment, again, I haven't tasted any of this, so I, I maintain a high level of journalistic object, uh, let's, let's not say object, skepticism about whether this map is real or not. But anyway, just let's stipulate that there is a map. Why not talk about it? Isn't it disempowering? This is the argument from those who get up and talk, you know, and, and talk about their attainments, that it, it's useful to say to people, you can do this, and it isn't just for monks, and, and also that, that uh, here's how to do it. And... Um, Anyway, yeah, that's their argument, that it's empowering. Right. I, I agree with all of that. And I would probably choose still to say all of that. You can be a lot freer than you are. You know, you can let go of grasping aversion and delusion. You can see your life clearly. You can get on that subway and genuinely feel your life has something to do with all those others. You know, you can have these huge effects of insight and it's disruptive. Insight is very disruptive to one's life, you know? You don't go on in the same ordinary patterns. Uh, it's very radical. You can, absolutely. And I believe there is a way. Not everyone agrees on the map, which is another issue. You well, know? Like, different schools of Buddhism have their own maps. That's right. And there's disagreements you know, even within the schools. That's yes. right. You know, so upholding something, <laughs> upholding something as dogma is very problematic, right? But I do believe, and I have experienced that very map of the progress of insight, you know, so... I believe in that, um, and I think one can see, one can glean the wisdom of it. So, for example, um, something that you and Jay were talking about was those stages where uh, it's like what happens is your mind just naturally falls on the beginnings of things, you know, thoughts starting, sensations beginning, and uh, you live in a world for that time of beginnings. It's like renewal, beauty, uh, light, you know, ecstasy. It's just like, um, it's a world of creation. It's it's amazing. And uh, a lot of people think, wow, this is it. You know, it's this tremendous good feeling that's going to last forever. And it doesn't last forever uh, because nothing does. And and so you go through all the difficulty of letting go of that and, and so on. I think that's really interesting to know. Uh, 
when it becomes a really linear sense, which nobody actually knows if it's like this stage, exactly followed by that stage without any you know back and forth, um, then it becomes another prison for us. Like, oh no, yesterday I had three and a half minutes of light. You know, today it's not here. I'm, I've fallen. I've fallen backwards. It's it's just not. Um, it's not the way the path happens. You're just punishing yourself. So where what's the answer? I mean, should we not talk about it, or should we talk about it carefully, or what? How to? I think I took. <laughs> I have the answer. I live the answer really well. Uh, no, it's what I just said. It's like I would talk about the insights. I would talk about the results. Otherwise, you're just trying to have a um, trying to tick off the box. Yeah, right. stream entry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I feel that with with myself. I mean, I feel like I I want to uh, I want to get there. I want to yeah. see what it what it's all about. Um, but I, I feel like the more you want it and the more you're trying to go for it specifically, the less likely you are to get it. And what is it anyway? That's right. All right. Let, I, <laughs> I, I've, I've held you for a long time, but I'm not going to let you go yet. Um, so so um, one of the things I did in preparation for you coming on the podcast was uh, I asked people on Twitter to send questions. Um, and so we're not going to get to all of them, but uh, let's let's start with some of them. Um any easy trick to start? This is one of the one of the questions that came in. A lot of people have trouble starting meditation. So, do you have any views on? Mm-hmm. So, we're di- we're diving from the deep end back to the shallow end here. Any easy trick to get started? Um, two things. One is establish a, a reasonable commitment. Like, don't think I'm going to sit for eight hours on the weekend. Uh, it might be five minutes a day. Uh, it could be ten minutes a day. We've had that discussion too. I now say five to ten minutes. Thank a day you. Is a great way to start because of you. <laughs> Uh, the discussion was about my saying the first five minutes are the hardest five minutes usually because you're, you're so agitated often thinking about what you have to get done that day that 10 minutes is like kinder to yourself than mm-hmm. five minutes. But it, if it's a reasonable commitment for a short period of time, like I'll sit 10 minutes a day for two weeks or five to 10 minutes a day for a month, something like that, um, that's much better than thinking about sitting for an hour or something that's really unreasonable. And it's not a lifetime commitment. You are going to assess um, and evaluate. But at the end of that month, let's say, uh, look at your life to see if it's any different because that's where the difference will show, not necessarily in that dedicated period. And the other thing was if it helps you, um, see if you could set up some system of accountability. It's like a a community. Like I have... um, a small cyber group I belong to where somebody said if he uh, wakes up in the morning and he turns right, he's at his computer. If he turns left, he's at his meditation cushion. So we formed a a support group. There are only five of us. And every day when you've meditated, you email the other four. And the subject line is always turned left. And if you want, you can say something else like for turn left for two and a half seconds or two and a half hours or the weather's great here or say nothing. You know, the important thing is is that you've you've reminded one another. What do you say this is not on the list of questions which we'll get back to in a second, but I hear this all the time and I would love to hear what your answer is to it. People say to me all the time, um, I get it, meditation is good for you, but you don't understand I can't do it because my mind is too busy. I can't settle my mind. What do you what do you say to people? Uh, that's a place where you need a good teacher, whether it's person to person or on an app or tape or whatever. Um, because first of all, everyone can do it. The goal is not to wipe out thinking um, or annihilate the ability to think. The goal is to have a different relationship to your thoughts. So even if you have a torrent of thoughts and even if they go on and on, and even if they're not very positive, doesn't matter. Because uh, first of all, you're settling more on the breath, a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and a little bit more, and you're also developing more space toward the thoughts, which is the goal. So that will definitely happen. But it's it's such a common idea. Like oh, I shouldn't be thinking. It's all wrong to be thinking. It's you know I'm doing it wrong. And and so you really need a good good amount of guidance. That's a better answer than the one I give. Um, that's not surprising. Uh, how to handle emotions when they surge? Again, this is another Twitter question. How to handle emotions when they surge? Let's say anger, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, here too, it's it's a it's like a suite of tools that one just needs to practice with, um, because some emotions are harder than others. But 
the more you practice, the uh, the more you can establish a different relationship to the emotion. So uh, a common one is feel it in your body. You know, rather than just go round and round and round and round, like, first I'm going to write that, and then I'm going to write that, and then I'm going to write that, and then I'm going to totally bring them down that way. Like, feel it in your body. And see if you can switch from the content, like the grievance or the plan of action, uh, to the emotion itself. It's like, when we have a strong emotion, um, even if it's like strong desire, we're usually paying attention to the object, not to what it feels like to have so much desire. Right. So like I need a new car, you know, so I might think of should I get that kind of upholstery or that kind of thing or whatever. And we get consumed by that, not, you know, kind of pivot our attention back to what does it feel like to have desire? Yeah. So that's what we would do with the anger. I try to do that around cookies. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. It doesn't always work. What does it feel like? Yes. Um, And so you feel it in your body. also, we look for the add-ons. Um, as with everything, it's the papancha that gets us in the end. You know, I'm such an angry person, I will be forever. Spent $10,000 in therapy and I'm still angry. What a waste. Um, you know, whatever it might be. And those are just add-ons. And come back to, okay, what does it feel like? Uh, and then we kind of deconstruct the anger movie. We just look. And so maybe within the anger, we see sadness, we see fear, we see helplessness, whatever it might be. Uh, And then if we choose to take action, we can do that with a full comprehension of all those feelings, you know, not just the topmost layer, which was the anger. And we also see change. You know, if you look at anything in that balanced way, you'll see it's constantly changing. And so that quality, that, that emotion, which seems so solid, so oppressive, so overwhelming. When you really look into it, it's constantly changing. And so it's different. Very nice. Um, I'm going to cut fo- cut off the Twitter questions in the interest of time and just finish on the last question, um, which was promised at the beginning, which is to talk about this word that you use, which is faith. Because I actually think it, actually it works nicely with the folks who are asking us questions on the sort of beginner side of things here. In order to keep going... You need some faith that this thing works. Mm -hmm. In other words, you need some confidence that you're not wasting your time. And that really is the spirit in which you're using the word faith, is it not? Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Um, I think it's different kinds of faith at different times. It's like uh, when I think about what brought me out of Buffalo to India, you know, like um, it wasn't like an overwhelming confidence, but it was some possibility with some sense of possibility that made it worth going for. Um, so maybe that's all you have. It's kind of intriguing or it's interesting or it seems like it'll be challenging in a good way. And that's why I think we need structure. It's like a period of experimentation. Um, so you need the willingness to try it wholeheartedly for that period. Um, and then it's faith in your own ability to discern is this making a difference? You know, you don't have to believe anything or anybody else. And is it really making a difference? And um, take a look at your life and, and see if that is supported or not. Um, and there, there are kinds of faith that are uh, really based on our own experience that are really the best kind of faith, um, you know, rather than dogma or, or just excitement or enthusiasm about something. And uh, so you have to trust yourself and, and trust your ability to, to really see clearly. Thank you for listening to today's show. You can find video of the episode and an article about it at abcnews.com. Thanks, as always, to the producers of the show, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, and Dan Silver. You can hit me on Twitter at Dan B. Harris anytime you like. If you liked the episode today and you want to hear more like it, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and leave a review. Thank you for that, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. 
You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. Welcome to Pura. The most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer land. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us in Pura. Promised to keep you safe. I killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pure. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery+. Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.